Hi, and welcome to the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra podcast. I'm Felipe Tristan, associate conductor, and the clip of music you just heard was A Grand Grand Overture by Malcolm Arnold. Today, we're happy to have Carlos Camposeco, co-concert master and BSO board member, to talk about our upcoming February concert. Later, we will talk to timpanist David Cox. Welcome, Carlos. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So I've been wanting to invite you to this very podcast, but for one reason or another, things haven't worked out. So I'm so glad that you're here this time. Likewise. Thank you. Where are you from, Carlos? I'm originally from Mexico City, and I've lived in New York for about 25 years and in the U.S. for maybe almost 30 years. Oh, wow. I was going to say, Viva Mexico, but maybe, <laughs> well, maybe yes, not. <laughs> so 30 years in the U.S., where did you move to first? So I came to college. I went, I, I went to school in Philadelphia. And after that, I moved right to New York. You came to college right. in Philadelphia so, to study what? Actually, to study economics and music at the University of Pennsylvania. And yeah, right after high school in, uh, in Mexico. So, And I never went back, I guess. Very nice. So let's let's rewind a little bit. In your early years, where is music? What is music? How did it happen? So my first instrument is actually piano. I started when I was five years old. In um, Mexico City? In Mexico City, yeah. I used to go to like Yamaha Academy mm-hmm. with like everybody else, I guess. And I, I still do. I like it well enough, but it was really in high school that I discovered the violin. There was uh, a Japanese girl who played violin who really made me... I'm very impressed with just the sound and what she could do, and I was hooked right away. I remember it, and it, since then I started practicing as much as I could. But by that point, you had already been playing piano for years. Right, for a few years. You know, taking it somewhat seriously, but not not the same. You know, I, as I said, I still play piano and I enjoy it, but really now my first instrument is a violin. And so you said, okay, violin is my calling. Right, right. So after I was ex- exposed to that, I really started getting more interested in, in the violin, and I got one, and I got a I got a violin for Christmas, and I started lessons in Mexico City, and I, you know, as I said, I started discovering music, classical music, and it became um, a passion very quickly. So how old were you when you got your violin for Christmas? I was 14. I, I had just started high school, and yeah, so I, you know, I got it, and I started lessons, and I my goal was to start playing as soon as possible. You were very motivated. Yeah, yeah. And so not long later, you moved to the U.S. Right. So I finished high school. And then I went to a British high school in Mexico. So it was a natural thing to move to another country, really. Most of the people in my school moved somewhere else. They didn't stay in Mexico. So I, my original plan was to move to Canada. But... University of Pennsylvania was recruiting people in my school, so, you know, I found out about it, and they had scholarships for Mexicans, and I got a scholarship. And, uh, hey, it's a great, great uh, school, great right, university. So, yeah. You continue playing through college? Yes, yes, I did. Okay. I joined the orchestra, the and that was the first time I played in an orchestra. And so I remember, like, the f- first things we played, and I still there's still my favorite pieces of music. We played Brahms' Second Symphony. We played Marriage of Figure Overture. And those are still two of my absolute favorite pieces of music. Wow. They're very And I remember, you know, I remember the audition. I had never auditioned before. I had just taken lessons, and I didn't even know what sight reading was. 
So I got the first page of the first violin part for Brahms 2. And so I didn't understand what I had to do. I was like, surely I'm not expected to just play this. But apparently I was, and it didn't go very well. Let's, let's just say. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, I guess it, it got you somewhere. You're right. Here you right. Are. Well, I, you know, it, it got me into the orchestra, into the you know orchestra at, at school. And I moved from the very back of the second violins to the first violins in my college orchestra. And I continued playing after college. I started doing some work, some master degree type stuff work at the Manus with Nanette Levy. And I started, I continued playing and mostly, you know, in orchestras around the city and some gigs and things like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you came to New York after getting a job in... In finance, right? In finance. Yeah. So okay. A, a so walk job. us through through these years that brought you to what you do today. So I was at uh, Solomon Brothers, which was a very famous in, um, investment bank in the well, really in the eighties and nineties. Uh, and I was there for two years. Then my uh, my boss moved to Santander Investment, and I moved with him to um, to do Latin America economic research. Emerging market research. I was doing at that point. I was like the U.S. economist for Santander, which was a big title that I don't know that I that I necessarily was ready for. But in any case, there were hard times for emerging markets. At, after a year, and our whole department was uh, laid off, which turned out to be a good thing for me because I really wanted a change and I wanted to focus on something else. Right after that, I started going into nonprofit research type mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Then I moved to arts management. I worked at the American Music Center for over 10 years. And then I decided to get my master's in therapy and um, mental health counseling. So I've um, been a therapist for about five years now. Wow. Very impressive. Very, very bright person. Yeah, and so... Uh, did you continue playing through all these years? Yes. The one, you know, as I said, there was a lot of change in my professional life, but the one thing that was always constant was playing. The so violin. Know, right, playing the violin. Tell us, Brooklyn Symphony, how did it happen? How did you get into the orchestra? Um, well, I moved to Brooklyn in 95, 96, really, actually. And I remember that I hadn't been playing for at least a year in an orchestra or in any organized way apart from just by myself practicing at home. So I looked online. I just typed. There was internet back. Oh, no, I know exactly. <laughs> it was a very new thing, the internet. And I just typed a search, you know, for I, my neighborhood, which was Brooklyn Heights, and it's a Brooklyn Heights orchestra. And there was there was such a thing, the Brooklyn Heights Orchestra, which was a Brooklyn Symphony. It was still before. called Brooklyn Heights. Yes, and they had a concert right after I found it. So I went to the concert. Then I talked to Sarah Richards. Then Anderson. Uh, <laughs> so, and she was very, very friendly uh, and very welcoming. And I, it really encouraged me to, to join the orchestra. And I did. And that was did you have to have years a ago, sight almost. reading audition? Uh, no, actually. Back then we didn't <laughs> have auditions. Time. Yeah. So, but we've changed that since. And so, next concert with the BSO, we have a very, very exciting program, including pieces by Mexican composers Carlos Chavez and Silvestre Revueltas. Right. Uh, well, you know, I'm really excited about this upcoming program because I was fortunate 
enough to be able to participate in putting together the program. And um, uh, when we found out that the Brooklyn Museum, where we're performing, is was planning a blockbuster exhibit of Frida Kahlo's art, we thought it'd be a great opportunity to Perfect. present, right, you know, Mexican music and music that she might have had an involvement with. And so I found this piece, the Horsepower Suite, well, the Horsepower Ballet, really, was premiered in Philadelphia in 1932, and in attendance were Frida Kahlo, Diego Rivera, her husband, and Diego, who created the sets and the costumes for the ballet, and Copeland, Aaron Copeland was there, and Gershwin was there as well. So I figured it would be really great to recreate this very exciting event and have those composers be part of the program. You know, there's so many connections with these composers, and of course, Revueltas, who, who I don't think was there, but really is, you know, with Chavez, is like, a, as you know, right. one of the main figures in Mexican music. So there's, there's so much to talk about there. You know, there's so many relationships. Copeland was very good friends with Chavez. Chavez had a very interesting relationship with Revueltas, similar to the relationship that Copeland had with Gershwin, it turns out. Somewhat of a mentor, right. mentor friend, and then frenemy type Exactly, of thing. exactly, right. yes. So, you know, sort of like working together, being very supportive of each other, and then sort of not... Stabbing the bag whenever necessary. <laughs> right, so it's finding okay. that, you know, some things change, and that their styles were diverging, and then they became very critical of each other. And I'm talking about the pairs, right, of Copeland, Gershwin, Chavez, mm -hmm. or Vueltas. Yeah. And so it's an interesting... Parallel. At the end of the day, though, this was a really exciting, this event, right, 1932, was really exciting because it was kind of like the height of wanting to make this Pan-American sound, Pan-American concept hmm. happen. So Copeland was really supportive of Chavez, and he was saying, you know, you need to find your own voice in Mexican music. We need to turn away from European music traditions. And create, this late romantic right, idea of right, wanting exactly. to and then, represent, so create something but, that sounds yeah. American and not just American as in U.S. American, but like really that Pan-American sound, really. Uh, and that's why people were so excited about this premiere. But so concretely, we are presenting the suite extracted from right. this ballet, Horsepower right. mm -hmm. yes, Ballet Horsepower suite. Yes. by Carlos mm -hmm. Chavez. And Revueltas, we are playing his Ventanas. Right. One of his... More challenging works. So, Which translates onto... As windows. Windows. Right, yeah. Where, but, but it turns out not anything in specific makes it windows. There was, there's no programmatic element to the music. In, and in this case, you can't even attach it. Normally, there's a lot of Revolta's music that was composed for film or for... Specific. This wasn't part of a film it, it's score. No, and when he was asked about the title, he's, he just said, you know, it's just a title. It doesn't have anything to do with with anything. Um, okay. Could have been called table. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. But, um, it's you know, it's very exciting music. And, I, I, you know, it's a challenge for us, definitely. And it will be, I think, a challenge for the listeners. It's unusual music. And it's Revueltas at his most sort of um, idiosyncratic in a way. Like, he really is a little bit like um, an artist who's just spilling the paint, like a Jackson Pollock type. Right situation where there's a lot of ideas, a lot going on all at once. Exactly. Um, Orchestration it, is so rich and there are all these motives here which kind of trap you and, yeah, Right, Go right, ahead. exactly. So, you know, um, I think it, and it, it encaptures both what's exciting about Revueltas, which is his being his own person, creating a, a very individual sound. And it still sounds very Mexican. 
but and it also has was kind of criticized for not having much structure for not having like a coherent idea so there is a lot um a lot going on and maybe encompassing the fight that that eventually happened which Chavez was more traditional he wanted a sound that even though was Mexican but it was still academic in a way yes exactly exactly so it's an interesting juxtaposition for the two of them right a lot of the thematic material is similar and all in fact I'd say in the force pieces that we're playing there's a lot of familiar tunes that mm-hmm. we can hear mm-hmm. if you can really make them out. And also with Copeland's El Salon Mexico, that it's been presented as well. What can you tell us about? Yeah, so, so El Salon Mexico is really a piece about Copeland trying to create a picture of Mexico through dance. And I think specifically at a, about a place that exists in Mexico City where people, you know, take it very seriously. A, a dance hall. Right, right, exactly. Right, exactly, right. very traditional. And apparently, Cuban was very interested in, in Mexican music. So, and Chavez introduced him. Apparently, Chavez took him to El Salón Mexico, in fact. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all these things that are connected, which is very exciting. From what I understand, this piece was not written in response to that. It was actually, he got traditional folk music sent to him. And from those tunes, he came up with this sound that sounds both Mexican and American. It sounds very much like Copeland, but it still sounds Mexican. Very much his style, exactly. I agree, but but with a flair, a nod to Mexico. Right. Definitely exactly. agree. Exactly. Yes. So it's definitely going to be a fantastic program. If you're listening, definitely pencil it down. Sunday, February 24th at the Brooklyn Museum. Works by Mexican and American composers. We expect to see you there. And Carlos, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story and and telling us all these fascinating facts about the program that we will be presenting. Thank you. We are back now with a fantastic guest, a member of the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra percussion section, and in particular, timpani, our star timpanist, David Cox. Welcome, David. Hi, Felipe. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm so glad that you were able to to join us. Certainly. So let's start with the beginning. Where are you from, David? I grew up in Washington, D.C. My father worked, my mother stayed home and took care of three children. And at some point, I was getting into a little trouble, and uh, my father suggested I take music lessons, you know. So you were getting in what kind of trouble that they recommended music? Well, you know, we, we didn't grow up in a real fancy neighborhood, and Washington could be a little dicey, and uh, so they, he he suggested drum lessons. He knew of a, a music store downtown. He worked in a bank. And so we went there, and I took music lessons for a while. And it didn't really work too well. <laughs> you still had energy left after yes, your percussion yes. lessons. <laughs> and so how did you become more serious in music? What happened in your in your school years? Or Right. Well, when I was uh, in sixth grade in elementary school, A band came to the school and played, and I was just flabbergasted. I 
had a spiritual experience, you know. I just loved hearing these kids play music, you know. So I approached my mom about it, and she inquired around, and we found a music, another music store, music shop, and we went there, and I discovered a great teacher. His name was John Richardson, and he played in the Air Force Band, which was stationed in Washington, D.C. So he had a very good job, you know, playing music. He was the head of the percussion section. So right from the beginning, you were set on percussions. Did you try any other instrument, or were you curious no, at any point? No, I, I, I was attracted to the drums. So I started studying with John Richardson, but only snare drum. Yeah, wow. So your lessons with Mr. Richardson were on snare drum alone. Yes. And how, how did the rest of the percussion instruments appear? When? Yes. So I approached my mom. I said, you know, I want to take lessons on marimba or xylophone, something like that. So she said, well, what are you going to do? So I started looking in the papers, and I had saved some money, and I found a small marimba for sale. It was less than $100, and I called Mr. Richardson, and he said, sure, just come over to my house, and we'll, you'll, we'll start on xylophone. So wow. that was maybe first year of high school, uh -huh. and that was where everything began. And so the next step, did you go to college for music, or what did you do? Yes. So I finished high school, and I was doing very good on, on um, reading mallets on the xylophone. So I auditioned for Manhattan School of Music. I had to come up here. I took an overnight train from Washington, and I did great. Wow. Did you graduate from MSM, Manhattan yeah, School? Oh, yeah, oh, sure. And what came after that? Well, before I graduated from Manhattan School of Music, in my third year, I was with a teacher, Paul Price, and he was a mover and shaker in the world of percussion music. And so he was able to get a tour with the State Department of the United States for his percussion ensemble. And it was an, a graduate ensemble, and I was only a second-year student, but he took me. Wow. So, so you got to go on to a tour with the graduate percussion yes. ensemble. So my third year I spent rehearsing, and then we went on tour for six or seven months. Tour of what? where? What countries? We toured all of the communist bloc countries and the Middle East. And we also went to Vienna, and we went to a couple Scandinavian countries. It was such a, an amazing experience. I imagine. Wow. We went to Norway, you know, Oslo. Trondheim, oh gosh, it was just amazing. Sounds like the experience of a lifetime. And so during this tour, were you playing snare drum, xylophone, all instruments? All instruments. Yeah. And so you graduate from MSM, and did you then continue to live in New York, start working as a freelancer? What happens? So when we came back, I knew I was interested in timpani. And at that moment in time, Arnie Lang, the assistant timpanist with the New York Philharmonic, mm -hmm. and a guy named Fred Hinger, he was the timpanist in the Metropolitan Opera by that time. So they both appeared on the roster of the faculty. At a Manhattan School of Music. At Manhattan School of Music. So the stars were 
in line for you to go into Timpani. So I jumped ship and I had to do it. I know that it caused angst. You had that calling, yeah. I really wanted to, to explore Timpani. So I, I chose Lang because I, I knew of him. Nowadays, do you call yourself a timpanist or a percussionist? I call myself a timpanist Timpanist. Now. Yes. I did for years play percussion. And I, my best jobs were playing percussion. percussion. But there was, this was commercial music. This yeah. was not classical music. Tell us about your most memorable performances. I'm, I mean, if you can pick a, hand, a handful of them. I stayed with Arnie Lang in, in Manhattan School of Music and really concentrated on timpani. When I graduated, Lang recommended that I go to Juilliard. So I was at Juilliard for a couple of years, and I didn't finish. And the main thing was I'd been a student my whole life, and work was starting to happen. It wasn't the best work, but it was work. And, and Opportunities came, and you couldn't say no. Well, I just wanted to work. I, you know, right. I had that. I'd been a student my whole life. And then that led to what? I, I started playing drum set more and more. And uh, one thing led to another. I got in better and better bands. And the music business was much more vibrant in New York City, probably on the whole United States. How so? Well, there were parties. I worked in bands that did dinner shows at the Waldorf, the Americana, the the Plaza, the St. Regis. Did a, a lot of Broadway shows. What show comes to mind? Me and My Girl. Uh, my one and only Tommy Toon and Twiggy. My name was on the contract. I was a main sub in 42nd Street, the original with the star Jerry Orbach. I've subbed on both the drums and the percussion. The percussion player was Frank Sinatra's percussion player. He was never there. And the drummer was the drummer from Sesame Street, and he was always absent. So I worked. I worked sometimes more than they did in that show. Wow. <laughs> it was a, and it was a very uh, well-written, orchestrated book. Six saxophones, no strings. Six saxophones. It was like a real big band. Three horns, percussion and drums, guitar, bass, and piano. Full set. Wow, very impressive. And so Broadway, you are already full on doing this, doing that. What comes after? What, what other type of gigs were you getting? One night I was coming out of a, th a theater on 44th Street, the St. James Theater. The show was uh, with Tommy Toon and Twiggy. And I ran into a very famous drummer named Bill Lavornia. I said hello to him. He said, what are you doing? You know, he says, come on with me. We'll go eat some Greek food. So I went with him. I really admired him. He was... Judy Garland's drummer, and then he was Liza Minnelli's drummer. Hmm. And so, so we started meeting, you know, once a week we'd bump into each other. He was, he was working for the show Liza with a Z, and I was doing some other show. And so then subsequent to us meeting in, the, in, in Midtown, he calls me up and says, would you consider going on the road with Liza? And With a Z. I, okay. Yeah, exactly. So I said, yeah, sure, sure. I'd, I'd love to, Billy. Wow. So it turned and out... And you did go? Yeah, but it turned out to be one of the best jobs in the whole world. 
It was only 12 musicians and very special arrangements, costumes for the band, a set, you know, you were up on these things. They flew it all over. She was, she had just won Academy Award. So... Did you meet her, get to talk to her, work with her? All the time. Yeah. She was the most generous person I've ever met. And she was truly showbiz royalty. And she would make an effort in a plane or a, a car or something. She'd come sit beside you. And, she, you know, we're just plebeians, regular musicians. You know, she was, she was such a star. And she made the effort to make you feel relaxed and talk with you. She wanted to know about you. Very special woman. Very nice. Very special. I'm curious to hear how you became drawn or involved in symphonic music after all this vast exposure to It's an amazing New story. York. Could only, you know, life is stranger than fiction sometimes. I got a call around 91, 90, maybe 1992, the day after New Year's Eve I'd worked, and somebody was calling me from Europe. They were in Germany and wanted to know if I wanted to come and work. They were doing a show. The show was Phantom of the Opera. So I immediately assumed that it was Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera. Anyway, it was January. I didn't have much on my book, and certainly I could afford a couple of, couple of months. So I flew to Frankfurt, rented a car, drove across Germany, It was snowing. It was like a movie, you know. I go to this beautiful little town called Friedrichshafen, I think, right on Lake Constance. It was so beautiful. Oh, the south of Germany. Uh, so it was so beautiful. And I had been awake for a day and a half, two days, you know. So I get there. I got a beautiful pension, you know. I go upstairs. I'm ready to just lay down and go to sleep, you know, and there's a lovely note with some chocolate and flour on the bed, and it says, David, please come over to the theater immediately from the conductor. So I go over to the theater, and that's where my life changed because I had taken with me a camera bag, a bass drum pedal, and a stick bag of drumsticks mm -hmm. and a carry-on. When I got to the theater, I saw immediately that it was a percussion setup. Hmm. So now the, it becomes... A game changer. A game changer because I hadn't practiced that in years. This version of Phantom of the Opera was one of the first ones that came about. Andrew Lloyd Webber's comes many, many years later. So this version utilized real opera music, symphonic music. So I get there, and the conductor's trying to talk me through it, but, the, it, you know, marimba, glockenspiel, timpani, I couldn't think straight. So I went there, and I fell on my face, but I started to understand by the end what was happening. And so the conductor says, don't worry about it. 
you know, I, I know, I know you're going to get it together. You know, I went back to the pension and I, I couldn't even sleep and I was so tired I couldn't, you know, but a couple of weeks went by and during those weeks I never saw anything. I would have the crew take the marimba downstairs or I would find a piano and do ear training. First time in 20, 30 years, 25 years that Impressive. I would practice. So, and after a month or so, two months, I was there for six months, we landed in Paris and the show was performed at the Opercom Week for six, seven weeks mm-hmm. as spring came along. So it changed my whole... I bought timpani. I bought two symphonic timpani from the guy in the concert cabal when we were in Amsterdam, the show. And so everything was changing. Everything was starting to change. So you get back to New York with your mindset already onto something else, and I assume you start playing more and more with orchestras, symphonic orchestras. I didn't know how to to get into that world, so I contacted Arnie Lang, and he he suggested I start taking courses at Brooklyn College on timpani mainly, but on the other instruments. The conductor of the orchestra offered me a fellowship Right away. Wow. And so when and where does the Brooklyn Symphony come in your life? Okay. So there was a guy there at Brooklyn College, another percussionist, much younger than me, and he was playing for Nick. They were rehearsing. Nick Armstrong? Yes. And they were rehearsing in the basement uh, of a church, and then they would do their concerts at St. Anne's in Brooklyn Heights. So something happened with him. They were doing their concerts at this church, but they, the church was getting dilapidated. The Brooklyn Symphony lost the church to perform in, so they came to Brooklyn College for a couple of years to do their concerts. At that time, Nick Armstrong was the head of the preparatory department or something like that. And so... He approached me, I think, and I said, sure, well, why not? It was a no-brainer, so uh, I rehearsed with them, and then they did their—they didn't do their rehearsals at Brooklyn College. They did them in Brooklyn Heights, but then they did the concerts there, and I was totally— At Brooklyn College. Yes, so that's how how I started. How long ago was that? Must be— I would say it was around 98, 1998, 96, something like that. Wow. And, you know, so I've been playing with them a long time. For 20 plus years. That's yeah. a, that's fantastic. Yeah. Congratulations. And so what's, in all these years with the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra, can you share a particular performance that has been memorable to you hopefully for good reasons or any reason. Well, he he once did uh, Beethoven 9 there, and, you know, they, they're big, big theater, so that that's always memorable. You know, we all love Beethoven. It's just, you know, whenever you play it or sing it or you... you, you There's know, no it, way to get not get involved, of course, right, of right. course. So. Well, thank you very much, David. I always 
like asking if you were to play a non-percussion instrument, non-mallet instrument, no timpani, which would you choose? I, I would I would play I would choose piano. <laughs> uh, no, Your percussion is a heart. Yes. To the core. Very good. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, David. It has truly been a pleasure. Thank you for sharing all these fascinating stories of, of your life and your life in music, your life in New York, and with the Brooklyn Symphony. A pleasure having you today. Felipe, it's my pleasure. You know, I love it when you conduct, and thank you for saying that. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Please visit brooklynsymphonyorchestra.org for more episodes of the podcast and to purchase tickets to our next concert on Sunday, February 24th at the Brooklyn Museum. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Audio support by Joey Glick and Plush NYC. I'm Felipe Tristan. Thank you for listening. You, Cuba, the inspector said. Were you involved in these distasteful shenanigans? No, the Cuba said. I'm a confirmed bachelor. I was home all night, playing cards with my landlady, the harp, taking sips of warm milk from a little blue cup.